Chapter Eighteen of Snowdrift, a story of the land of the strong cold by James B. Hendricks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Snowdrift by James B. Hendricks. Chapter Eighteen. Lost. Brent was conscious of a drone of voices. They came from a great distance, from so great a distance that he could not distinguish the words. He half realized that somewhere men were talking. Befuddled, groping, his brain was struggling against the stupor that had held him unconscious for an hour. Two months before, half the amount of liquor he had taken into his system would have drugged him into a whole night's unconsciousness, but the life in the open and the hard work in the gravel and on the trail had so strengthened him physically that the rum, even in the poisonous air of the cabin, could not deaden him for long. Gradually, out of the drone of voices, a word was sensed by his groping brain. Then a group of words. Where was he? Who were these men? And why did they persist in talking when he wanted to sleep? His head ached, and he was conscious of a dull pain in his cramped neck. He was about to shift into an easier position, when suddenly he realized where he was. He was drunk, in the filthy cabin of the Belva Lou, and the voices were the voices of Claw and the mate and the captain, who were still at their liquor. A wave of sickening remorse swept him. He, Carter Brent, couldn't keep away from the hooch. Even in the vile cabin of the Belva Lou he had fallen for it. It was no use. He would kill himself, would blow his worthless brains out and be done with it rather than face. A sudden ravage rage obsessed him. Kill himself, he would, but first he would rid the north of these vultures. He was upon the point of leaping to his feet, and with his fists, his chair, anything that came to hand, annihilating the brutish occupants of the cabin, when the gruff voice of the captain cut in upon Claw's droning monotone. "'And when we get him and his Indian planted, me and Ace'll take his dogs and hit back here, and you can strike east along the coast till you pick up another woman. It's a damn outrage, that's what it is. Charging me fifty dollars apiece for greasy old pelters like them that ain't worth the grub they eat. What I want is a young one, good-looking and young. You had your pick out of the eight, growled Claw. And a hell of a pick it was. Why, I've went out and rustled em myself, and for a sack of flour, and half a dozen fish-hooks, and maybe a file or two, I've got the pick of a hull village. Brent's brain cleared gradually as he listened to the villainous dialogue. Vaguely he sensed that it was himself and Joe Pete that the captain spoke of planting. So they intended to murder him, did they? And when that detail had been attended to, they would go on with their traffic in winter wives. But they did not intend to kill him here on board the vessel. The captain had spoken of coming back, 
after the deed was done. Where would they take him? Brent suddenly found himself possessed by curiosity. He decided to wait and see. And when the time came, he would give as good an account of himself as he could. And then, what difference did it make? They were not fit to live. He would kill them if he could, or maybe they would kill him. But he was not fit to live either. He had sat at table with them, had fraternized with them, drank liquor in the stinking cabin with the scum of the earth. He was no better than they. He was one of them. The bottle scraped along the table, and he could hear the audible gulping of liquor, the tap of the returned glasses, and the harsh rasping of throats as they were cleared of the fiery bite. Then the voice of Claw. You ain't had no pick of a village since the Mounted begun patrolling the coast. Damn the Mounted. Yeah, that's what I say. But damnin' them don't get rid of them. Facts is, they're here, and every year it's harder and harder for a man to make a livin'. But listen, Cap, I've got one bet up my sleeve. But it'll cost you more'n any fifty dollars, or a hundred either. She ain't no husky, she's an Indian breed, and damn near white. Her name's Snowdrift, and she's the prettiest thing in the North. I've had my eyes on her for a couple of years. She was in the mission over on the Mackenzie, but she ain't there no more. She's way up in the copper mine, with a band of about twenty dog ribs. Claw paused to pour a glass of liquor and Brent felt the blood pounding his eardrums in great surging throbs. He felt the sweat break out on his forehead and the palms of his hands, and it was only by a superhuman effort that he continued to feign sleep. Surely they would notice the flush on his face, the sweat glistening on his forehead, and the dryness of his lips. But no, Claw was speaking again. I tried to buy her once, last year it was, often her mother. Offered her a thousand dollars, cash money, and for I knowed what happened, the damned old squaw had me about half killed. She's a hellcat. She done it bare-handed, clawed my eyes, and clawed out a full handful of whiskers. You can see that patch on my throat where they never growed back. It was over near good hope, and I didn't dast make no holler nor kill her neither, on account of the mounted, but I'll get her yet, and when I do, I'll learn her to pull folks' whiskers out of the ruts when they're trying to do the right thing by her. "'You won't get no thousand dollars from me,' exploded the captain. "'There ain't no woman, white, red, brown, yellow, or black, that's worth no thousand dollars of my money.' "'Oh, ain't they?' sneered Claw. "'Well, you don't get her, then. Fact is, I never figured on selling her to you, nohow. I can take her over to Dawson and make ten thousand off in her in six months' time. They got the dust over there, and they ain't afraid to spend it, and they know a good-looking woman when they see one.' I'm a-tellin' you, they ain't no woman ever hit the Yukon that can anyways touch her for looks, and I've saw em all. 
The only reason I'm offering her to you is because I can run her up here a damn sight easier than I can take her clean over to Dawson, and with a damn sight less risk, too. How old is she? growled the captain. Ain't a day over twenty. She's dirt cheap at a thousand. You could have her all winter, and next summer you could slip into one of them coast towns, Juneau or Skagway, or even the ones farther north, and make five or ten times what you paid for her. But suppose she's got spunky and I'd kill her or knock out her teeth or an eye. Then where'd my profits be? Women's hell to handle if they take a notion. That's your lookout. It's your money that's invested, and if you ain't got sense enough to look after it, it's your funeral, not mine. How you gonna get her here? How you gonna get her away from the Indians? And how you gonna know where she's at? It's like this. Last summer she leaves the mission, and her and the old squaw talks the dog ribs into hitting over onto the copper mine to prospect. They gets over there and builds em a camp and starts in trappin' and prospectin'. But a couple of the bucks has got a thirst for hooch, and they can't get none, so they pulls out and hits back for the Mackenzie. I run on to one of em, and he gives me the dope. He's the one that's here with me, and he's going to guide me down to the village when I get ready to go. That's why I asked Ace in the Hole if he saw him. I didn't want him buttin' in on the deal. The old squaw's bad enough, but God, I seen him kill three men in about a second in a saloon in Dawson over a stud game, bare-handed. They ain't no woman ever got her hooks into him, not even the queen of the Yukon, and she done her damnedest, really loved him, and all that sort of bunk. I know all about women, and she'd have run straight as hell if he'd have married her. Some says she's run straight ever since she got caked in on him, even after she seen it wasn't no use. He kind of sticks up for em all. Anyways, he knocked hell out of me one night when I was lacing it to a gal I'd brung into the country with a dog whip. He won't stand for no rough stuff when these women mixed up in it. And I'd rather be in hell with my legs cut off than have him find out what we was up to. I don't want none of his meat. Me. Better go easy with your jaw, then, advised the captain. Maybe he ain't so damn dead to the world as he's letting on. Claw laughed. I've got him gauged. I've studied him, cause I aim to get him some time. He's a hooch hound, right. Half what he's drunk today will put him dead for hours. You could pull all his teeth and he'd never feel it. No, we ain't got to bother about him. He'll be out of the way before I hit for the engine camp anyhow. We'll wake him up after a while, and I'll give him a bottle of hooch, like I said, so he'll stay soused and not move his camp. Then we'll hit over there with more hooch. And when he uncovers his dust, we'll get him and the Indian both. Your share of his dust will be half enough to pay for the breed. But before we start out, you fork over half the price, balance payable on delivery, and me and the Indian hit up on the river and fetch back the girl. 
It'll cost you a keg of rum besides the thousand, cause the only way to get her away from them siwashes be to get em all tanked up. They'll be right for it, being off the hooch as long as they have. But at that, I'd better take along a man or two of the crew to help me handle em. We won't bother none of the crew, rasped the captain harshly. I'll just go along myself. With five hundred dollars of my dust in your jeans for a starter, after you'd got her, you might go to thinking of them ten thousand you can make off her in Dawson. Not that I wouldn't trust you, you understand, but just to save myself some worry while you was gone. Then, if she's as good-looking as you say, I'd rather be along myself than let you and some of the crew have her till you get here. Brent's first sensation when he heard the name of Snowdrift upon Claw's lips had been one of blind, unreasoning fury. But his brain cleared rapidly as the man proceeded, and as he listened to the unspeakable horror of the conversation, the blind fury gave place to a cold, deadly rage. He realized that if he were to save the woman he loved from a fate more horrible than he had ever conceived of, he must exert the utmost care to make no false move. His heart chilled at the thought of what would have happened to her had he yielded to the first blind impulse to launch himself at the throats of the men there in the little cabin where all the odds were against him. A pistol shot, a blow from behind, and Snowdrift would have been left absolutely in the power of these fiends. Cold sober now, his one thought was to get out of the cabin, yet he dared not move. Should he show signs of returning consciousness, he knew that suspicion would immediately fasten upon him, and that his life would not be worth a penny. He must wait until they roused him, and even then he must not be easily roused. Claw had assured the captain that half the amount of liquor would deaden him for hours, therefore he must play his part. But could he? Was it humanly possible to endure the physical torture of his cramped position? Every muscle of his body ached horribly. His head ached. He was consumed with torturing thirst, and his mouth was coated with a bitter slime. Added to this was the brain torture of suspense, when his every instinct called for action. Suppose they should change their minds. He dared not risk opening his eyes to the merest slit, because he knew that Claw or the captain might be holding a knife to his ribs, or a pistol at his head. Any moment might be his last, and then Snowdrift, he dared not even shudder at the thought. There was another danger. Suppose he should overplay his part when they undertook to awaken him, or should underplay it. He knew to a certainty that one false move would mean death without a chance to defend himself, unarmed as he was and with the odds of three to one against him. An interminable period, during which the men talked and wrangled among themselves, was interrupted by a loud knock upon the door. "'Who's there?' roared the captain. "'And what do you want?' "'That me, Joe Pete.' came a familiar voice from beyond the door. 
and I'm tink that time we goin' back. She start to snow, and I ain't like we got lost. Too much no trail. Might as well get him started now as any time, whispered Claw. We don't want him to get lost neither. What we want is for him to get to their camp, and then the snow and the hooch'll hold him till we get there. Next thing is to get him woke up, answered the captain. Aloud, he called to Joe Pete. All right, come on in and give us a hand. Your partner's stewed to the guards, and it ain't going to be no cinch to wake him up. The door opened, and Brent's heart gave a leap as he felt the hand of the big Indian upon his shoulder. If anything should go wrong now, at least the odds against him were greatly reduced in so far as the occupants of the cabin were concerned. But there would still be the crew. They could shoot from the cover of the igloos. The hand was shaking him roughly, and it was with a feeling of vast relief that Brent allowed his head to roll about upon the stiffened muscles of his neck. A glass was pressed to his lips, and there was nothing feigned in the coughing with which he sought to remove the strangling liquor from his throat. His eyes opened, and the next instant a dipper of cold water was dashed into his face. The shaking continued, and he babbled feeble protest. "'Let me alone. Go away. Let me sleep.' The shaking was redoubled, and Brent blinked stupidly and feigned maudlin anger as the Indian slapped him with the flat of his hand, first on one cheek and then on the other. "'Who you slappin'?' he muttered thickly as he staggered to his feet, as he stood swaying and holding to the table for support. "'Come on and fight,' he challenged, acting his part to a nicety, glaring owlishly about. "'I can lick y'all. Give me some water. I'm burning up.' A dipper of water was thrust into his hands, and he drained it in huge gulps. "'What's going on here?' he asked, apparently revived a little by the water. "'Gimme some hooch!' Claw laid a conciliating hand upon his arm. "'Listen, ace in the hole,' he purred. "'Not no more hooch right now. It's startin' to snow, and you gotta be hittin' for camp. Look-a-here!' He picked up a corked bottle and extended it to Brent. "'Here's a bottle for you.' Wait till you get to camp, and then go to it. Twon't take you only a little while, but you got to get going. If she thicks up on you before you get to the mountains, you'll be in a hell of a fix. But you got time to make it, if the siwash will shove the dogs along. Better let him ride the sled, he said, turning to Joe Pete. You'll make better time. Brent took the bottle and slipped it beneath his parka. "'How much?' he asked, fumbling clumsily for his sack. "'That's all right,' assured Claw. "'Tain't nothing at all. It's a present from me and Cap. Shows we know how to treat a friend. Come over and see us again when the storm lets up. You're welcome to anything we got.' "'Much obliged, Claw,' mumbled Brent, blinking with solemn gravity, 
as he smothered an impulse to reach out and crush the man's windpipe in the grip of his hand. "'Didn't know you was a good friend of mine. Know it now. And you too, Captain. You too, Snags.' "'Scroggs,' corrected the mate. "'Asa Scroggs.' "'Sure, Scroggs. Excuse me. Must be a little full. My name's Ace, too. Ace in the hole. Pair of aces. <laughs> Pair to draw to, I'll say. Well, so long. Tell you what, he said as he turned to the door, leaning heavily upon Joe Pete. You come on over to my camp when the storm lets up. Right on the river. Can't miss it. Bloody Falls, where old Hearn's engines butchered the poor Eskimos. Damn shame. Bring over plenty of hooch. I've got the dust to pay for it. Bring a dozen bottles. Plenty dust back there in camp, and it'll be my treat. We'll come, the captain hastened to accept. Might as well be good friends. Neighbors ain't none too thick in these parts. We'll come, won't we, Claw, and we'll bring the hooch. Stumbling and mumbling, Brent negotiated the narrow alley and the steep flight of stairs in the wake of Joe Pete. At the head of the ladder that led down the ship's side, he managed to stumble and land harmlessly in a huge pile of snow that had been shoveled aside to make a path to the igloos, and amid the jibes of the two sailors who were cutting blubber, allowed Joe Pete to help him onto the sled. The wind had risen to half a gale. Out of the northeast it roared, straight across the frozen gulf from the treeless, snow-buried wastes of Wollaston land, driving before it flinty particles of snow that hissed earthward in long cutting slants. Heading the dog southward, Joe Pete struck into the back trail, and, running behind, with a firm grip on the tail rope, urged them into a pace that carried the outfit swiftly over the level snow-covered ice. Upon the sled Brent lay thinking. Now that the necessity for absolute muscle control no longer existed, the condition of cold hate into which he had forced himself gave place to a surge of rage that drove his nails into his palms, and curses from his lips as he tried in his unreasoning fury to plan extermination of the two fiends who had plotted the soul murder of his wonder woman he would tear them to shreds with his two hands he would shoot them down from ambush without a chance to protect themselves as they searched for his camp among the rock ridges of bloody falls gradually the fume of fury cooled and he planned more sanely he was conscious of a torturing thirst. The bottle of hooch pressed against his side, and carefully, so as not to disturb the covering robe, he drew it from beneath his parka. He was cold sober now. The shock of what he had heard in the cabin of the Belva Lou had completely purged his brain of the effect of the strong liquor, but not so his body. Every nerve and fiber of him called for more liquor. There was a nauseating sickness in his stomach, a gnawing dryness in his throat, 
and a creeping coldness in his veins that called for the feeling of the warm glow of liquor. Never in his life had the physical desire for drink been more acute, but his brain was cold sober. Nothing of the heart-sickening remorse of his first moments of consciousness assailed him now. What was done was done. He knew that he had yielded to his desire for drink, had weakly succumbed to the first temptation, as he had always weakly succumbed, an act in itself contemptible. But with an ironical smile he realized that his very weakness had placed him in a position to save from a fate of a thousand times more horrible than death the girl who had become dearer to him than life itself. But with that realization came also the realization that only by the merest accident had the good men been born of evil that the natural and logical result of his act would have had its culmination at Bloody Falls when he and Joe Pete would have sunk down dead upon the snow at the moment he produced the gold to pay for more hooch. Claw had laid his plans along the logical sequence of events. He played me for a drunkard, as he had a right to, muttered Brent, and his scheme would have worked except for one little mistake. He forgot to figure that physically I'm a better man than I was back at Dawson. He thought he had me gauged right, and so he talked. But he overplayed his hand. An hour ago I was a drunkard. Am I a drunkard now? It is the test, he muttered. The war is on. And with a grim tightening of the lips, he thrust the bottle back under his parka. Three times within the next two hours he withdrew the bottle, and three times he returned it to its place. He thought of tossing it into the snow, and a moment later angrily dismissed the thought. She wouldn't ask odds of the hooch, and I won't either. I'll keep this bottle right with me. I'll fight this fight like a man, like a Brent. And by God, when I win, it won't be because I couldn't get the hooch. It will be because I wouldn't drink it when I had it. And the next moment, to the utter astonishment of Joe Pete, he leaped perfectly sober from the sled and took his place at the tail rope with a laughing command to the Indian to take a rest on the robes. An hour later, Brent halted the dogs and aroused Joe Pete. "'We ought to have hit shore by this time,' he said. "'I'm afraid something's wrong.' The snow had thickened, entirely obliterating the trail and forming an opaque wall through which the eye could penetrate but a short distance beyond the lead dog. The Indian noted the course and the direction of the wind. "'Maybe so wind change,' he opined, and even as he spoke the long sweeping lines of snow were broken into bewildering zigzags. A puff of wind coming at a right angle from the direction of the driving gale was followed by another blustering puff from the opposite direction, and they came thick and fast from every direction, and seemingly from all directions at once. The snow became powder-fine, 
and in a confusion of battering blasts the two men pushed uncertainly on. End of chapter 18 Recording by Roger Moline